Welcome to the Hackberry House of Chosun. My name is Bob, and I'm reading today from a sermon that was once preached by Charles Spurgeon. This message is from a collection of Spurgeon messages created by Perry Boardman, known as Spurgeon's Gems. Today's message is from volume one, number 52 is the number, and it's entitled Free Will, A Slave. This is part two. We started last time with the passage, John chapter 5, verse 40, and you will not come to me that you might have life. So he has four points that he wants to bring out of that. First, that every man is dead because it says you will not come to me that you might have life. Second, that there is life in Jesus Christ. You will not come to me that you might have life. Well, we're going to do the third part today the third of the four, and the fourth part two. Let's go there now to where we were yesterday. The eternal life is given to all who come for it. That's the third point. There never was a man who came to Christ for eternal life, for legal life, for spiritual life, who had not already received it in some sense, and it was manifested to him that he had received it soon after he came. Let's take one or two texts. It says, He is able to save to the uttermost them that come to him. Every man who comes to Christ will find that Christ is able to save him. Not able to save him a little, to deliver him from a little sin, to keep him from a little trial, to carry him a little way and then drop him but able to save him to the uttermost extent of his sin, unto the uttermost length of his trials, the uttermost depths of his sorrows, the uttermost duration of his existence. Christ says to everyone who comes to him, Come, poor sinner, you need not ask whether I have power to save. I will not ask you how far you have gone into sin. I am able to save you to the uttermost. And there is no one on earth who can go beyond God's uttermost. And now another text, him that comes to me, now mark the promises are nearly always to the coming ones, I will in no wise cast out. Every man that comes shall find the door of Christ's house opened, and the door of his heart too. Every man that comes, I say it in the broadest sense, shall find that Christ has mercy for him. The greatest absurdity in the world is to want to have a wider gospel than that recorded in Scripture. I preach that every man that believes shall be saved, that every man who comes shall find mercy. People ask me, but suppose a man should come who is not chosen, would he be saved? (laughs) Well, you go and suppose nonsense, and I'm not going to give you an answer. If a man is not chosen... He will never come. When he does come, it's a sure proof that he was chosen. Says one, uh, well, suppose anyone should go to Christ who had not been called of the Spirit. Stop, my brother. That's a supposition you have no right to make. For such a thing cannot happen. You only say it to entangle me, and you will not do that just yet. I say every man who comes to Christ shall be saved. I can say that as a a Calvinist or a hyper-Calvinist as plainly as, as you can say it. I have no narrower gospel than you have. Only my gospel 
is on a solid foundation, whereas yours is built upon nothing but sand and rottenness. Every man that cometh shall be saved, for no man comes to me except the Father. Draw him. But, says one, and suppose all the world should come. Would Christ receive them? Certainly if all came, but they won't all come. I tell you, all that come, I, if they were as bad as devils, Christ would receive them. If they had all sin and filthiness running into their hearts as into a common sewer for the whole world, Christ would receive them. Another says, I want to know about the rest of the people. May I go out and tell them Jesus Christ died for every one of you? May I say, there's righteousness for every one of you? There's life for every one of you? No, you may not. You may say, there is life for every man that comes. But if you say there is life for one of those who do not believe, you utter a dangerous lie. If you tell them that Jesus Christ was punished for their sins, and yet they will be lost, you'll tell a willful falsehood. To think that God could punish Christ and then punish them? I wonder at your daring to have the impudence to say so. A good man was once preaching that there were harps and crowns in heaven for all his congregation, and then he wound up in a most solemn manner, my dear friends. There are many for whom these things are prepared who will not get there. Well, in fact, he made such a pitiful tale, as indeed he might do, but I tell you who he ought to have wept for. He ought to have wept for the angels of heaven and all the saints, because that would spoil heaven thoroughly. You know when you meet at Christmas, if you've lost your brother David and, and his seat is empty, you say, well, we always enjoyed Christmas, but there's a drawback to it now. Poor David is dead and buried. Think of the angels saying, ah, this is a beautiful heaven, but we don't like to see all those crowns up there with cobwebs on them. We can't endure that uninhabited street. We, we cannot behold yon empty thrones. And then, and then, poor souls, they might begin talking to one another and say, We are none of us safe here, for the promise was, I, I give unto my sheep eternal life. And, and there's a lot of them in hell that God gave eternal life to. <laughs> there's a number that Christ shed his blood for burning in the pit. <laughs> and if they may be sent there, so may we. If we cannot trust one promise, we cannot another. And so heaven would lose its foundation and fall. Away with your nonsensical gospel. God gives us a safe and solid one built on covenant doings and covenant relationships, on eternal purposes and sure fulfillments. This brings us to the fourth point, that by nature no man will come to Christ. For the text says, you will not come to me that you might have life. I assert on scripture authority from my text that you will not come to Christ that you might have life. I tell you, I might preach to you forever. I might borrow the eloquence of Demosthenes or of Cicero, but you will not come to Christ. I might beg of you on my knees with tears in my eyes and show you the horrors of hell and the joys of heaven, the sufficiency of Christ and your own lost condition, but you would none of you come to Christ of yourselves unless the spirit that rested on Christ should draw you. 
It is true of all men in their natural condition that they will not come to Christ. But methinks I hear another of these babblers asking a question, but could they not come if they liked? My friend, I will reply to you another time. That's not the question this morning. I'm talking about whether they will, not whether they can. You will notice whenever you talk about free will, the poor Arminian in two seconds begins to talk about power and he mixes up two subjects that should be kept apart. We will not take two subjects at once. We decline fighting two at the same time, if you please. Another day we will preach from this text, no man can come except the Father draw him. Uh, but, but it's only the will we are talking of now. And it is certain that men will not come to Christ that they might have life. We might prove this from many texts of Scripture, but we'll take one parable. You remember the parable where a certain king had a feast for his son and bade a great number to come. The oxen and fatlings were killed, and he sent his messengers bidding many to the supper. Did they go to the feast? Ah, no. But they all, with one accord, began to make excuses. One said he had married a wife, therefore he could not come, whereas he might have brought her with him. Another had bought a yoke of oxen and went to prove them, but the feast was in the night time, and he could not prove his oxen in the dark. Another had bought a piece of land and wanted to see it, but I should not think he went to see it with a lantern. So they all made excuses and would not come. Well, the king was determined to have the feast, and so he said, Go to the highways and hedges and, and invite them. Stop. Not invite. He said, Compel them to come in. For even the ragged fellows in the hedges would never have come unless they were compelled. Take another parable. A certain man had a vineyard. At the appointed season, he sent one of his servants for his rent. What they do to him? They beat that servant. He sent another. They stoned him. He sent another. They killed him. At last he said, I will send them my son. They will reverence him. But what did they do? They said, this is the heir. Let us kill him, cast him out of the vineyard, and so they did. It's the same with all men by nature. The Son of God came, yet men rejected him. You will not come to me, that you might have life. It would take too much time to mention any more scripture proofs. We will, however, refer to the great doctrine of the fall. Anyone who believes that man's will is entirely free, and that he can be saved by it, does not believe the fall. As I sometimes tell you, few preachers of religion do believe thoroughly the doctrine of the fall, or else they think that when Adam fell down, he broke his little finger and did not break his neck and ruin his race. My beloved, the fall broke man up entirely. It did not leave one power unimpaired. They were all shattered and debased and tarnished. Like some mighty temple, the pillars might be there, the shaft and the column, 
and the plaster might be there, but they were all broken. Though some of them retain much of their form and position. The conscience of man sometimes retains much of its tenderness. Still, it has fallen. The will, too, is not exempt. What though it is the Lord Mayor of man's soul, as, as Bunyan calls it, the Lord Mayor goes wrong. The Lord will be will was continually doing wrong. Your fallen nature was put out of order. Your will, amongst other things, has clean gone astray from God. But I tell you, what will be the best proof of that, it is the great fact that you never did meet a Christian in your life who ever said he came to Christ without Christ coming to him. You've heard a great many Arminian sermons, I dare say, but you never heard an Arminian prayer for the saints in prayer appear as one in word and deed and mind. An Arminian on his knees would pray desperately like a Calvinist. He cannot pray about free will. There's no room for it. Fancy him praying, Lord, I thank you. I am not like those poor presumptuous Calvinists. Lord, I was born with a glorious free will. I was born with power by which I can turn to you of myself. I have improved my grace. If everybody had done the same with their grace that I have, they might all have been saved. Lord, I know you do not make us willing if we are not willing ourselves. You give grace to everybody. Some do not improve it, but I do. There are many that will go to hell as, as much bought with the blood of Christ as I was. They had as much of the Holy Ghost given to them. They had as good a chance and were as much blessed as I am. It was not your grace that made us to differ. I know it did a great deal. Still, I, I turned the point. I made use of what was given to me, and others did not. That's the difference between me and them. Oh, folks, that is a prayer of the devil, for the devil. For nobody else would offer such a prayer as that. Ah, when they are preaching and talking very slowly, there may be wrong doctrine, but when they come to pray, the true thing slips out. They cannot help it. If a man talks very slowly, he may speak in a fine manner, but when he comes to talk fast, the old brogue of his country, where he was born, slips out. I ask you again, did you ever meet a Christian man who said, I came to Christ without the power of the Spirit? If you ever did meet such a man, you need have no hesitation in saying, My dear sir, I quite believe it, and I believe you went away again without the power of the Spirit, and that you know nothing about the matter, and are in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. Do I hear one Christian man saying, I sought Jesus before he sought me. I went to the Spirit, and the Spirit did not come to me. No, beloved. We are obliged, each one of us, to put our hands to our hearts and say, as the poet said, Grace taught my soul to pray and made my eyes o'erflow. T'was grace that kept me to this day and will not let me go. Is there one here, a solitary one, man or woman, young or old, who can say, I sought God before he sought me? No, even you who are a little Arminian, will sing, Oh, yes, I do love Jesus, because he first loved me. 
Then one more question. Do we not find even after we have come to Christ, our soul is not free, but is kept by Christ? Do we not find times even now when to will is not present with us? There is a law in our members warring against the law of our minds. Now, if those who are spiritually alive feel that their will is contrary to God, what shall we say of the man who is dead in trespasses and sins? It would be a marvelous absurdity to put the two on the same level, and it would be still more absurd to put the dead before the living. No, the text is true. Experience has branded it into our hearts. You will not come to me that you might have life. Now, we must tell you the reasons why men will not come to Christ. The first is because no man by nature thinks that he wants Christ. By nature, man conceives that he does not need Christ. He thinks that he has a robe of righteousness of his own, that he is well-dressed, that he is not naked, that he needs not Christ's blood to wash him, that he is not black or crimson and needs no grace to purify him. No man knows his need until God shows it to him and until the Holy Spirit reveals the necessity of pardon. No man will seek pardon. I may preach Christ forever, but unless you feel you want Christ, you will never come to him. A doctor may have a good shop, but nobody will buy his medicines until he feels he wants them and needs them. The next reason is because men do not like Christ's way of saving them. One says, I do not like it because he makes me holy. I, I cannot drink or swear if he saves me. Another says, it requires me to be so precise and puritanical, and, and I like a little more license. Another does not like it because it is so humbling. He doesn't like it because the gate of heaven is not quite high enough for his head, and he does not like stooping. That's the chief reason you will not come to Christ because you cannot get to him with your heads straight up in the air. For Christ makes you stoop when you come. Another does not like it to be grace from first to last. Oh, he says, if I might have a little honor. But when he hears it is all Christ or no Christ, a whole Christ or no Christ, he says, I shall not come. He turns on his heel and goes away. Ah, proud sinners, you will not come to Christ. Ah, ignorant sinners, you will not come to Christ because you know nothing of him. And that's the third reason. Men do not know his worth, for if they did, they would come to him. Why did not sailors go to America before Columbus went? Because they did not perceive there was an America. Columbus had faith, therefore he went. He who has faith in Christ goes to him, but you don't know Jesus. Many of you never saw his beauteous face. You never saw how applicable his blood is to a sinner, how great is his atonement, how all-sufficient are his merits, and therefore you will not come to him. And, oh, my hearers, my last thought is a solemn one. I have preached that you will not come, but some will say, it is their sin that they do not come? Oh, yes, it is so. You will not come, but then your will is a sinful will. Some think that we sow pillows to all armholes. 
when we preach this doctrine, but we don't. We do not set this down as being part of man's original nature, but as belonging to his fallen nature. It is sin that has brought you into this condition that you will not come. If you had not fallen, you would come to Christ the moment he was preached to you, but you do not come because of your sinfulness and crime. People excuse themselves because they have bad hearts. That's the most flimsy excuse in the world. Do not robbery and thieving come from a bad heart? Suppose a thief should say to a judge, I could not help it. I had a bad heart. What would the judge say, you rascal? Why, if your heart is bad, I'll make the sentence heavier, for you're a villain indeed. Your excuse is nothing. The Almighty shall laugh at them and shall have them in derision. We do not preach this doctrine to excuse you, but to humble you. The possession of a bad nature is my fault, as well as my terrible calamity. It is a sin that will always be charged on men. When they will not come to Christ, it is sin that keeps them away. He who does not preach that, I fear, is not faithful to God and his conscience. Go home then with this thought. I am by nature so perverse that I will not come to Christ, and that wicked perversity of my nature is my sin. I deserve to be sent to hell for it. And if the thought does not humble you, the Spirit using it, no other can. This morning I have not preached human nature up, but I have preached it down. And may God humble us all. Amen. Charles Spurgeon. Free will, a slave. Thank you for listening, and as always, I ask you to look around the site and see if there just might be something that could be a blessing to you. If there is, then check it out. Enjoy it. This is the Hackberry House of Chosun. Lord willing, we'll talk again real soon. Bye-bye.